the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get the episode started today, I just want to mention, if you're enjoying the show, please uh, check us out. We do have a Patreon available and uh, would appreciate any anybody who's willing to donate to that. That can be found at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, which is uh, obviously Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Really excited today to have a uh, a someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while, but we've got we've got Bryn from uh, Beep Beep Lettuce. So Bryn, thanks so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me. I guess I should we should append that to include like a rock star as well. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's also me. I'm a for, rock star. For, first first <laughs> rock star to be on the show. So congratulations. <laughs> I, what what exactly quantifies someone as a as a star exactly? Like, I feel like you should have some fans. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you have, you have fans, <laughs> I'm sure, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we were sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's all been very strange because uh, my band, this project has been going on for four years um, and we've sort of been languishing in uh, obscurity um, for quite a while. And, and I mean, None of us are were ever trying to make any money off of this. It's always just been like we all like emo and we want to make this kind of music, and no one really is. Um, and we just had like an idea for a band, and so we made it. Um, it was a little more complicated than that, but it, it that's basically it. And we were playing, you know, shows of like you know, a hundred people would come out tops, like for us, you know, and that's like not. It's not nothing, but it, you know, we were a sort of very, very low level sort of band. And then all of a sudden this record came out, we spent a long time working on it, almost two years. And, uh, <laughs> it, people really liked it and, uh, it was getting a lot of traction and good reviews. And, um, and so now I think we have a lot more fans than we used to, but we can't play any shows. <laughs> Right, yeah. The <laughs> yeah, like no. dialectic of this, you know, this like such a high yeah. that you're on, but you're also like, fuck, we can't actually perform. So it's pretty weird. It's it feels like nothing has changed, but then like in in a fiction world, I have a lot of fans <laughs> <laughs> right. and people care about this band, but I don't know if any of that's true until Yeah, till you can you actually know, perform. The world comes back if it ever does. Right. I mean, I think that's a similar story to the podcast. For me, it's like I just uh, celebrated its third birthday on May 8th, and I just have to do something to keep myself from going insane. Yeah. More than anything. I mean, that's the, one of the fun things about podcasting is it just lets you do something and sort of get your ideas out and talk to people. It's a nice thing, even if it's a 
it's like therapy for people who think they're too smart for therapy. <laughs> right. What uh, I have to, I do have to ask uh, a little bit. Should tell what's it like uh, with to deal with with Todd and and John? <laughs> just because I just because I know them a little bit more. I you know I've had both of them on the pod and so forth. So I'm I'm just yeah. kind of curious. Give me the inside dirt on those two. Oh, I don't think <laughs> I know Todd doesn't want any yet. He'll he'll kill everyone if if anything leaks, but uh well well I mean they're both very easy to work with. Um I think you know Todd has has a very stringent like a stringent mind about how he wants things. That's funny. Um, yeah, I can so see he, it. He deals with <laughs> He deals with uh, all the edit. He, for the first, like, maybe nine, ten, almost a year, he edited every episode by himself. And not just, like, and not just, like, I think a, I, I edit the bonus episodes of Genes- Generation Loss. And uh, that's basically just, I put the song at the beginning and the end and I, <laughs> and I post it. Right. Um, every once in a while I'll have to beep something or something, but, like, don't really do anything except for like normalize the volume and you know pop it up but you know Todd is going in and like editing out silences and like cutting out jokes that don't land and making us all sound much smarter um than we are and uh it's that's just he's got a very um he has a very good understanding of that kind of thing and so he's he can be um he can be very intense about what he wants but i mean like we've just been like sure man do whatever (laughs) (laughs) thanks for making the show better um but besides that i mean like we call up and it's weird because i i mean i knew todd before we've talked about this on the show like me and todd knew each other from just hanging out around brooklyn and but john i never met before um until we, we had been doing the podcast for months and then we like were in pittsburgh and like hung out with them and it was really weird how much we clicked as people (laughs) it was like oh you're like a person i feel like i've known since high school that is weird right (laughs) you're like someone i would have hung out with yeah Um, it's such a different dynamic so john's always easy i mean he's just down to help and no i think we all get along pretty well i don't know if there's any dirt to say (laughs) yeah no i'm I'm just kind of kind of teasing uh because i it's funny how i met both of them and I guess even so I like I think it was Todd and I were kind of in the same kind of like shit posting circle mm-hmm. for a while and then I guess through that I that's how I got in touch with John and, and then I think even Chris Chris was following me for a while too mm-hmm. yeah uh, mutuals. except except mm-hmm. you you're you're totally you're fu- you're fucking me up by not following me I don't follow you <laughs> you don't what? I'm pretty sure I do. I mean, granted, <laughs> granted, you know, I am a, let's see, I'm a prolific shit poster, so it probably does get annoying. I would probably be someone that you'd have to mute. Well, we're friends on Facebook, so. I know, right? That's, oh, it should, you. it should be reversed. Like, how can you be friends with me on Facebook and not follow me on Twitter? You barely post on Facebook. Oh, yeah. I, I never see your shit. I try not to. Um, sometimes I get overwhelmed by, like, boomers posting. And I'll talk some shit, but yeah, I usually stay off that platform if at all possible. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's how Todd and John met as well, just like being on meme pages um, and 
posting together a lot. So it can be a way. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, it's unbelievable. Like my current roommate, I met through shit posting almost really. All, yes. All of my like in real life friends now are <laughs> all of my IRL friends are from shit posting. Mm. That's cool. I mean, that's a good, probably better way to meet people than any other way. <laughs> yeah, it is honestly, you know, because obviously being, you know, I'm super into theory. I'm, you know, anarchist or anarchist or whatever. So anarchist. it's tough. It's and I'm here in Texas, so I've never heard anybody say anarchist. <laughs> I, <that's, laughs> Do you prefer uh, that pronunciation? <laughs> that's you know sometimes things happen uh, on a live show, <laughs> and uh, you just yeah, roll you got with it. live you ammo. Roll. Sometimes you just fucking shoot yourself in the face <laughs> just, on purpose. Just roll. With I the didn't punches. mean to make fun of you. I just thought that was like a a cool different implication <laughs> if you put the emphasis on a different syllable. It was just one of those moments where I was in the middle of saying the word and then I like changed what I wanted to say and it <laughs> it was too late. I had already committed to it. So it's like a minarchist except, <laughs> <laughs> except you're actually an anarchist. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious. We we talked about this a little bit like via DM, but what's uh what was your like how did you get into you? You like Rick Owens, right? I do like Rick Owens. Like yeah. Rick. So does your does your listenership know what that is? Have you talked mm, about that on the show? I have. I a little bit here and there, not a whole lot. I've definitely mentioned before because, like, Rick's wife Michelle was Maybe. a protege of Deleuze and Guattari. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, she's a really interesting lady in her own right. She's like a filmmaker. Yeah. Whatever, like fucking stuffed animals and shit. She's she's an artist, I guess, just like broadly speaking. So, mm-hmm. and she's like always hanging out with like ASAP Rocky and or ASAP Rocky rather, and shit like that. Yeah, I am not a big follower of the cult. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain people people who are like into them as people and like know a lot about them um so just for your listeners who don't know um rick owens is a football player and he no i'm kidding he's he's a fashion designer um who uh started in la and makes clothes that are very weird and fun and gothy and i like them um and I was introduced to uh, Rick Owens by my friend who I ran into at a Nine Inch Nails concert a few years back. And we were talking about how cool everyone in Nine Inch Nails looked. And she told me that all of them were were personally outfitted by Rick Owens. Oh, nice. And I was like, who is Rick Owens? <laughs> um, yeah, that's apparently a thing that the lot. If you're in Nine Inch Nails, you just get free <laughs> uh, outfits from, from Rick. Um, and so I looked into it and I've, um, so I guess my history with fashion really comes from um, childhood, like growing up in Los Angeles. Um, it was just like, I think a lot of, um, it's just sort of a thing in cities, like inner city kids grow up with, like, uh, you know, you want to look fresh. That's just how, like, especially poor kids. I grew up very poor and in an 
extremely uh, Mexican slash Hispanic community. Um, and you just, that's a thing, right? It's so like, if you look like a dub, people will clown on you. Like, that's <laughs> just how it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can't have shit from Mervyn's. You know, you want Jordans, you want Tim's, you want cool guests overall. This is the <laughs> <laughs> Um, You know, and when I was a kid, that was important to me. And, you know, I had no theory about it. It was just like, I want to look cool. And there are certain things that are cool culturally and there are th certain things that are not. Um, and so for me, that was sort of just always grew out of streetwear. And then in college, yeah. I sort of like, well, like in high school, after I moved away from Los Angeles, I was just like sort of went very gothy. And that was just like buy stuff that I thought was cool. And that was sort of a rebellious thing also, because I was like considering myself an anarchist in high school. And um reading a lot and that sort of was about um just being different and being like trying to get away from standardized um capital or corporate shit do you know what i mean yeah. like wearing stuff that was black was you didn't have to buy them from big box stores or whatever right um and trying to get out of that like oh this is all about you know, just buying whatever the man wants you to wear or whatever. Um, and and then in college, I sort of just like stopped really caring if, at all and was just wearing whatever was cheap because I was very poor. Um, I mean, in high school, I was very poor too, but I was, you know, caring and had time to like go to thrift stores and stuff. And then in college, I was just wearing whatever. And then as I sort of like became a, uh, an adult and started working and having some money to have a hobby and like you know caring about what I looked like I went sort of back to the only black rules that I had in high school um also you know in college I started calling myself a communist and realizing like well there's no eth ethical consumption and like having more theory about it um but I still didn't love the idea of um just blindly saying like oh well i'm supporting big corporations or whatever so there's always this weird with fashion there's always this weird pull for me right. on both sides which is one is like gucci and louis vuitton are just owned by massive corporations and none of their shit is any better quality or anything there's no like material reason that it costs much more money except it's designed by people who are decided are high fashion and so you pay them more money for their designs um and that always didn't sit right with me i liked the designs and i would like follow i remember like when i was working in an office i would like bg chatting with my friend and we'd like every new york fashion week just like sending each other everybody's lines and like talking about it like i like fashion right. i've always thought it was interesting as a design thing because i'm i like art and i'm an artist yeah, same sorry i'm rambling i'm gonna keep no, going good. No, uh, <laughs> um and um and so i enjoyed it from afar but i didn't really have any money uh or i didn't have any I didn't feel like it was accessible, right? Like, where do you even go to buy something like that? Um, and then I, you know, you can go to like Bergdorf's or whatever and like everything costs thousands and thousands of dollars and it's very strange. Um, and so when I heard about 
but I, but like I said, I was always very conscious. Oh, and the th- other thing that you're pulled against is it's not like uh, thrift stores or just buying stuff at Walmart is any more ethical, right? Like yeah. it costs you personally less money, but it's right. made with the same sweatshop labor. It's made with the same underpaid workers, the imperialist uh, shipping lines and like it's all part of the same system so there's no like you can't feel better because you buy thrift i don't you know what i mean like i feel like all of that is is illusory um it doesn't feel real to me because it's it you're not helping anybody by not buying it (laughs) um it's already produced i think is and maybe that's the issue like in general with this kind of idea of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism like the goods are out there already you know what I mean? The labor yeah. has been poured into them. And what's interesting is that clothes, I think specifically, uh, unlike any other um, necessity, are under scrutiny because they are so, they are the thing you see. Like they are the aesthetic, right? They are your, they they become your personality. And even people who aren't into fashion just like understand this. Right. Um instinctively yeah where there's just like what you look like is about how you've put yourself together and the 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 subcultures that you identify with are on your body whether you like them or not even if you try to there's an old episode of doug (laughs) where he like he wears have you ever seen that show doug oh yeah there's a do you remember this episode where he uh he always wears a green sweater vest and a white t-shirt and khaki shorts and tennis shoes and then that look becomes the popular thing and so everything in his everyone in his school starts dressing exactly like him so he feels the need to like change he's gonna change it up right he doesn't want to look like everyone else even though he wears it every single day uh and so he he's like i just don't want to look like anything and he just like puts on random clothes and they're like, Oh no, that's actually this weird French thing. Um, <laughs> and I, the lesson is, is that like you are what you think. And I, I don't think the cartoon exactly made necessarily meant to make this intensive a point, but whatever you think looks normal is the result of massive mechanizations of culture. Yeah. Um, and even if you think, you know, I'm just going to buy whatever's cheap, I'm going to buy, and you know, the devil wears Prada kind of makes this point where she's like, all of these things you've chosen from Target are like made decisions made by the fashion yeah. industry two years before. Um, and so I think it, it, it's, it's very interesting to me. And it, it, it's not like you can escape presenting yourself as something. So I've always tried to present myself as what I want to be presented as. Right. Um, Anyway, to get to your question. Uh, <laughs> 10 minutes later. Um, right? <laughs> 10 minutes later. Um, when I found out, when I was told about Rick Owens through Nine Inch Nails and my friend uh, January, um, I, I was sort of interested because it was like, ooh, this is, it's, like, it's a fashion designer that I didn't know about, which I thought was weird because I knew about like Comme de Garçon and, you know, Off-White. And, yeah, like, stuff that's in that. Virgil Abloh. Yeah. yeah in the more streetwear vibe, you know, like I, right. I, I know about sneakers a lot. Um, yeah. And so I heard about Supreme and all of these things. And I also knew Gucci and Louis Vuitton and stuff, but I had never heard of Rick Owens. And I started reading about 
Rick Owens, and he is a you know half Mexican person from California who does a lot of who is like very influential fashion wise. Like I remember when everyone was wearing drop crotch pants for some reason all of a sudden in Brooklyn in like early 2010s and I was like where is this coming from yeah um I remember when those like um thigh high sneakers came out and like I saw people wearing those so it was like every piece of fashion that I had seen and not known where it came from but I wanted <laughs> came from Rick. him nice. and I was like that's so crazy and then you read a little more and you read that like he has this very stringent ethics of like he didn't like that he had to source certain things from um practices that he considered ethical unethical so he like bought his own uh factory in what the place in moldova or some shit yeah there um, definitely was one in moldova but i think most of the stuff is produced all in italy. italy except yeah. for dark shadow stuff um and and Moldova is, you know, he just like, he's like, I have to pay every worker like a living wage. And like, that's crazy for like a fashion. I've never sure. heard a fashion designer yeah. say something like that. And so, you know, I, for me, it sort of felt like if you are going to care about, you know, you, the ethics of your consumption, like you kind of have to lean towards things that aren't going to be affordable to some people. Right. Um, if you can afford them, then it's better, I think. Um, and I think that that's what's so interesting about Rick is that it's like, it's not one of the reasons this, this shit costs so much when it's new um, is because he pays his workers so much money. Like all of the, all of the designers and all of the seams, uh, the tailors and shit, like all of those people make a lot of money. And, uh, and, I live in New York, so I've been to the store many times. And like even the people on the floor, the salesmen, the the retail workers, like talk have told me personally that like they get flown to Italy and they get, you know, free clothes and like they're treated very, very well. And including the security guard who just stands by the door. <laughs> like <laughs> so it's like he has this very stringent ethics. And while I think that there isn't ethical consumption i think that if you are going to be a person who makes something even if it's boutique um you have a responsibility to not just be like well there's no ethical manufacturing either under capitalism so i'm just going to do nothing and exploit my workers right and i think somebody who kind of understands that at least that's what it seems like to me uh was very um was very refreshing and surprising to me and the aesthetics are uh very up my alley and so i uh kind of got into his whole shtick yeah uh so i'm probably uh, i don't know five or six years older than you i think really yeah how old are you i'm 37 you are four years older than me so yeah but i think roughly growing up the same period like the early 90s obviously like did you mention the jordans were the thing right like that oh, was yeah. what i always wanted and i never could afford as a kid and so like sneaker well, culture you know, was a big big thing for me like grow from you know being a kid onward and uh also like you know i grew was growing up whenever gangster rap was becoming huge in the culture like whether it was nwa or like totally the chronic came out you know in like 90 or or whatever 91 <laughs> wait where are you side, from all that shit i i grew up believe it or not on a cattle ranch in texas in central okay, texas you're from texas okay. i'm from texas 
I have done real. Ca- I've done. Yeah, I've done real cowboy shit. <laughs> You're I, I, a real cowboy. Fed the cows. I've rounded up the cows. Mm-hmm. All, all kinds of shit. Awesome. <laughs> but uh, so I was. So it was like that influence, but also I was super into like the Dune, like the David Lynch film. <laughs> okay. It came out in the 80s. Like I loved, I saw that movie when I was like, I don't know, six or seven and was just like mm-hmm. enthralled. And so I always wanted to look like one of the, um, like the, uh, the guild navigators. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny they looking look back. Awesome. <laughs> right. And now looking back, it's like, did Rick actually, I'm wondering how influenced he was. <laughs> Because it's like I think they the costumers actually used uh, body bags for their to make their costumes oh, like literal literal body bags and they kind of you know put like collars and yeah. shit on them. But they're if you look in the movie, that's what they're wearing is kind of like these very uh, drapey kind of all black things with super like chunky boots, mm-hmm. like very very much like Rick Owens aesthetic to to a yeah. T. So. That's so funny. It's funny because I feel like, uh, you know, he's been doing a lot of um, looking backwards recently. Like his last few lines have been like Larry was all about the designer who did Kiss and a lot of like glam metal stuff and all of those inspirations. And then he did the newest one, which is all about like uh, his his mother's last name, his like Mexican heritage. And so there's all, all of this sort of and then he just did like a champion collaboration. Um, which is like, he was just like, when he would visit Mexico, all of his friends, all of his like family members would be wearing like jerseys and shit. And so he's been, I I wonder if it would be cool if he did like a, a dune line. (laughs) Yeah, it would be, it'd be amazing. Um, but like to kind of connect those two dots. So I forget it was like in the late, like right around 2010, I forget. I saw like the Rick, like the dunks that he had like mm-hmm. the sneakers and I was like holy shit this is like the most amazing pair of sneakers I've ever <laughs> seen in my life I I have to get a pair of these sneakers and mm-hmm. uh, by that point like he'd already received the cease and desist letter from Nike about the dunks yeah. and, and had to switch over to like the new the new brand new branding or like whatever Medi- new design yeah, rather mm-hmm. and uh so it was like that it was through the sneakers that I got into them and then it just kind of grew from there. But yeah, those uh those Larry like the the kiss kind of boots, those are mm-hmm. those are so amazing. I want them so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I I um I have like a very specific sense of what I like about Rick Owen's clothing and design. It's like there's a there's a level of like out there-ness that I like don't really want to embark on like I want to sort of like look almost like invisible um and a lot of this comes from like William Gibson um and his sort of like future cyberpunk shit where it was just like it's you know it's not someone trying to look fashiony right it's someone who looks weird because of what they're wearing but it's like I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but yeah. it's kind of like, less, want, less obviously curated maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I want to, I want to almost be mistaken for somebody who's just walking around in sweats. Right. <laughs> unless gotcha. you look closely. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yes. So, I mean, that's just me personally. So I would never wear such platformed boots, but I don't know. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll look a little loud or whatever, but I think everything he does is very interesting, even as yeah. like an, as an artist, uh, even if it's not something I personally would wear. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting the way that I've seen people sort of bulk at, uh, at the prices of things in fashion, um, where it's like, we've been so conditioned to be, uh, to expect that our goods and uh, services cost a certain amount that is like necessarily based on exploitation. Um, and then when somebody, you know, is like, well, here's something that isn't, uh, they're like, wow, you're being rich or you're putting on this like class notifier or whatever. Yeah, when, true. And that's one of, that's almost, I would have, now that I'm examining that, I would say that I think there's a part of me that doesn't want that. Right. right? Like I don't want yeah. someone to look at me and be like, oh, those, pants cost $500. Right. Um, and I'm not like trying to look like I'm wearing something that costs a lot of money. Um, I'm trying, you know, I just want to look, I just want to wear what I think is interesting um, on an artistic level. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you can go on Poshmark and buy a lot of Rick Owen stuff for like, you know, a 10th of the price it normally costs. So it's all very complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely feel about that. Like, did that ever rankle you? In a yeah, it, no, it, it absolutely does. Um, and I think too, because more so like, I wasn't ever like I was. I don't know, I, my background is more like coming from this weird, like libertarian kind of bent, like, uh, to a degree. And so, yeah. Um, in, in what way? Well, so I was like, I read like Anne, Ayn Rand in, in oh, high school and stuff. And I was kind of like <laughs> a little bit on that. And so I grew up in a really small town. And the thing mm -hmm. about small towns is the like the organic solidarity of a small town is, I think, different from like the mechanical solidarity of, of a place like New York City. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very much like there's a there's a way that you're supposed to be like there's a, a a model for what a person should do like you should if you're a man you should play football and you should, you should be masculine and like that's mm. that's the line like that you should pursue right mm -hmm. so from that angle i very much felt like there was a very conformist pressure to like buy into all of this stuff so i always was someone that I've, I felt uh, like I wanted to get, I, I hated that. You know what I mean? It's also the thing that growing up, growing up in a small town, everyone knows everyone's business and like <laughs> mm -hmm. wanting to, es wanting to escape from that. And like that kind of sense of conformity and pressure and like being just like kind of churned out as this specific like idea of what a man or whomever should be. So a lot of my libertarian stuff is more so like culturally and, not right. being you have a you have a knee-jerk reaction towards like a sense of conformity or or right yeah, yeah exactly I get that and i mean behaviorally too it's like the you know our school was obviously it was like maybe three or four hundred kids in the entire high school for example and like chewing gum or something or talking in class <laughs> was like a big deal you know right if you did that you could, like one time I, in junior high i like had to go before the the school superintendent for example just for like talking in class and like making a joke or something what is the superintendent 
they're like the business, like the CEO, effectively, of a school. What? Yeah. Is it a public school or not yeah, a public yeah. school? Yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, they kind of like are the bit like this. Yeah, effectively, the CEO, I would say, is a very similar, you know what I mean? They're looking at budgets, curriculum, oh. like the like the bird's eye view, like running of a school district, you know, all, okay. you know, budgets, all that kind of bullshit. Interesting. That's weird. I didn't know. I didn't really realize school had those. Um, but whatever. Um, yeah, I. Uh, so, so you're saying that like a part of you wants to stand out as a, as different, right? Yeah, so that was definitely a definitely a thing. I think for as long as I've been alive, I guess I have this idea. Like, I want to, I want to present one thing to fuck with you to like short circuit your mm-hmm. your assumptions. Like, I want to be the dude that like totally fucks up the stereotype and i i have a like i have an enjoyment of that of being something unexpected always totally no i think i it's interesting because i um there was a period in my life where i i guess i kind of felt that way um but mostly with art um not necessarily my own self um but i was also homeschooled my whole life so I have a very strange understanding of like social stuff <laughs> um, because I never really got bullied or anything. I never felt any pressure to do anything except yeah. from like my family or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I always had an, in, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to be poor, I mm. think. Oh yeah. I didn't really realize. I don't think I really realized that I was poor until like college because like everyone else I knew was poor and like you just couldn't afford stuff and like that's just how life was (laughs) like everyone was like oh hope we don't like lose our house like that happened to multiple friends you know like oh actually I remember in middle school one of our friends parents inherited like millions of dollars and they had they like moved to a different area and they all of a sudden had every video game <laughs> and it was like oh you guys are rich that's cool but it was like it didn't really change anything because they weren't like really rich do you know what i mean it was like oh you have a lot of money but like you just have more shit like I, everyone was like i wish i had that much shit and then they would often like buy people shit cuz <laughs> they uh you know but that was sort of the first time it was like oh yeah, I guess we don't have an, an, the same amount of money because what they got wasn't as much as you think it would be, you know? Yeah. Like they didn't right. have private jets. Yeah. They didn't have, you know, they weren't, they didn't have an extra house or whatever. They just had like a nicer house. Um, but there was an understanding of like, oh, there's like a different level of security that I didn't know that people had, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I had this weird situation growing up where my actual so my mom and dad were poor but my grandfather was like had means so i was raised in this kind of like mixed world where like i experienced some i guess like i don't know what a poor kid would write and like kids at school had their jordans and like uh reebok Mm. pumps and shit like that so i always wanted that stuff as a kid and never could have it until I, i like in middle school i 
finally started. I got like my first pair of like Nike sneakers and I was super thrilled about that. That was like, (laughs) so even from that age, I was super conscious and aware of, of like fashion and kind of started buying my own clothes and kind of getting into it that way. And then it just kind of like built and built. Totally. Until in college, I got a job at like a Neiman Marcus last call. Oh, wow. And then that totally fucked up my perception of like what one, what's a reasonable amount of money to spend on clothes. <laughs> and I've, yeah. I've, I, it ruined me and I've, I've never turned back <laughs> from that point. So. Yeah, that's fair. Is that how you got into Rick Owens? Uh, I mean, it was more so like I had an interest and then like I stumbled upon, like I said, I stumbled upon the, the dunk sneakers, I right. think. And that was kind of like how I got into Rick. And then as I got more and more into it, it was like, oh man, this is, this is kind of the vibe that I enjoy. I like this kind of cyberpunk, futuristic, gothy vibe, like the Dune or like the Blade Runner vibe. Yeah, yeah totally. Is, is something that I always wanted to imitate. And then I, at, at a certain point, I was like, you know, we're living in a dystopia so I'm gonna dress, dress like, like <laughs> I'm gonna dress like I'm living in a dystopia, and then it it's like it's grown and grown and it's gotten more sophisticated, and now I'm to the point where I like. Uh, so I'm really drawn to things that are like more androgynous. Mm-hmm. So I have I have like a Rick uh, denim skirt, and then I have like I, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand. Uh, it's called Lad Musician. They're a Japanese mm-hmm. brand. Okay, it's a good cool. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, so they have, I've got a pair of slacks and one of the legs is done in such a way that it looks like it's basically this kind of long skirt. Oh, that's interesting. And so, yeah, I've gotten more into kind of the Japanese and even like Korean kind of style. Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite Instagram accounts are like these goth girls from Korea that have amazing fashion sense. Sounds neat. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, speaking of Korea, um, I found out that um North Korea has uh like a pair of shoes that they make for like av- you know, then you know, just everybody. Uh and they're sick. Nice. <laughs> and I really want them. <laughs> but I, I have don't to think see you- them. I mean, they're like normal, they just look like regular ass shoes. I mean, like they kind of look like vans that are gotcha. more like sort of I think they have laces and they're just like black with white soles and like gum bottoms I think and uh they look sort of like just so nothing like they're nothing they just like they have no understanding of branding right like it's like a nice shoe for you to wear <laughs> that's we made it as a state yeah um and everyone can have them and I really want them but I don't think you can have them <laughs> <laughs> right yeah, someone would have to, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd have to do some things. You'd have to make some deals, yeah. some shady deals. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to get hurt. Right. But if anybody knows how to get them, I'll take <laughs> them. But it's funny, so like in Austin, you know, you think, right, hip city, young city, live music capital, blah, 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 right? But the fashion is like, I mean, in comparison to New York, it's an absolute backwater. Have you been to New York? Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, I've been to Austin once for South by, um, and that's it. So I what don't really ye- know any. What year was it? Out of curiosity, I think it was two years ago. Okay. So twenty. Twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen, I think. Um, 
it was in like March. We played some shows. We stayed with our friend a um, little outside of the main area. Um, I, I honestly have no idea how the city's laid out, but yeah. it was fun. I mean, like, seemed like a nice, nice town. Mm. I ate lots of barbecue and breakfast tacos, <laughs> um, and they were delicious. But uh, yeah, I don't know much about it. But yeah, so it's kind of like uh, it's like the flannel sort of like the kind of hipster uniform is kind of like what what you frequently see. You don't see a lot of even like streetwear or more avant-garde stuff like Rick that much. Well, actually, I uh, wore um, I wore a Ultra Boost for one day. All white Ultra Boost. They were a collab with Amon Lanier. Um, and they were destroyed. Oh, I bet. Like, I believe 100% it. Yeah. 100% dust. Like, it was just so much dust that I, like, they, those shoes got completely yeah. ruined. And then there was no moment when I was like, oh, no, I stepped in dirt. It was just like at the <laughs> end of the day, I was like, right. oh, fuck, fuck, these are completely brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's part of it. Maybe yeah. Some more Yeezys or whatever. <laughs> To to a degree, I I mean I think Southwest South by Southwest definitely you know that's a lot of like impromptu venues and shit so that'll definitely happen. You got to have a pair of a beaters for a day like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Like people saying like don't like people who won't support Kanye because he is you know a Trump guy or like oh, man. or whatever. Like do you think that is matters? Hmm. I mean. I can't support Kanye anymore. I oh, really? did I did enjoy Kanye a lot for a time. Like he was actually very influential on kind of the direction that my style took, I think. Sure. But I mean, he definitely yeah. had that sort of like deserty uh still does that like sort of like desert Mad Max dystopia yeah. kind of vibe. Exactly. So I mean he I think even from way back in like 2000 and you know, seven, eight era was somebody that I kind of looked to as for like fashion inspiration. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, obviously now it's like, I don't know. I'd rather spend money on, on a pair of Ricks that I think are just a better quality item than like a, a pair of Yeezys that I, you know, are going to be manufactured on an assembly, you know, on an assembly line sure. kind of funky, like the super exploitative element of it. I mean, even that goes to Nike's too. It's for a while I was going back and like buying old school Jordans, like retros or whatever. And mm-hmm. eventually it was like, man, fuck this. I'm not going to pay, you know, a beyond retail for this shitty shoe that's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. I'll spend twice as much on my Ricks that are going to last for like 20 years because they're made right. from good they're made by hand and they're made out of out of quality leather and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what, so. Do you? I mean, I guess my feeling is is like, do you? I mean, that's a good reason to buy a thing, right? Like you have an object and you want it to last a long time, but like, does it? Like, I don't. What I'm saying is personally, like for me, like Kanye's shoes aren't any more to me any more unethical than Jordans or Nikes or New Balance or literally anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, like, obviously when we talk about 
you know, handmade boutique pieces by a friend or by Rick Owens or something, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, obviously then we're talking about a different sort of, but yeah. I think it's interesting, like why I don't understand why people are like, well, I'll buy Jordan's, but I won't buy Yeezy's because he was Trump. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that kind of political calculus doesn't mean anything. It's completely idealist to me. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, so, yeah. Voting with your dollars in general is kind of like, yeah, whatever. It always, it always bothered me. And I always like, I remember people would say that, like, I remember many years ago, I would like talk about, you know, ethics and clothing production or, or any production. Uh, and people would be like, well, just vote for with your dollars. I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you can't vote with your dollars. Yeah, you can't. Like, that's getting the horse, like, that's putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, right? It's like, like that example you gave from, uh, what was it? The Devil Wears Prada. It's like, this is a hierarchical system that is pushing, like it's pushing out the products and convincing you to buy them rather than you, like, you know what I mean? You have, yeah. by the time you're making your purchase, it's already too late. The goods have been, like the exploitation has occurred. The goods are produced. Mm-hmm. But it's also like a complete fallacy because it, it like, it completely, because I've heard like, I don't know, maybe not leftists, I guess, especially not anymore, but like, I remember back in like 2010, people who like consider themselves anti-capitalists like would say that shit. And it's just like, you're completely buying into the concept that we have any choice of capitalism. Like we don't have choice in capitalism. Like that's not how it works. <laughs> um, I don't know why anyone would say that. It always bothers me. It's like that Simpsons, the Duff beer that all comes out of one funnel <laughs> into the different, the three different like brands of Duff. <laughs> I've never really seen that show. <laughs> it's been a long time. I grew up on it, you know, but I haven't watched in like 30. I can't believe it's still going. I think everyone feels that way, even <laughs> the people who make it. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm thinking about, you can find like Michelle, like Rick's wife's email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or it looks like on her Instagram, you can email her. So... I think I might try to send an email to that address and be like, hey, come talk about Deleuze and Guattari with me. <laughs> that would be crazy. I mean, yeah. I kind of imagine that she, she gets that many, like, asks. Right. To, like, for interview. I mean, you she wouldn't doesn't really think so. I mean, to a degree, right? But, like, they're still, I mean, even in, like, high fashion, they're somewhat obscure. I mean, although... Like Michelle, yeah. they like they get a, they get invited to the White House whenever Obama was president, and like Michelle Obama, they did. Wore, they did. There's a picture of Rick and Michelle and and fucking and Barack and Michelle. Gross. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then like Michelle Obama wore Rick Owens dresses and shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Wild stuff, but yeah, it was it's pretty funny that. I forget how I even stumbled across that. Like I was already a huge Rick fan for like years and years. And then mm -hmm. I, somebody, I forget where I even saw it. And it was like, oh yeah, Michelle Lame was a protege of Deleuze and Guattari. I was like, holy fucking shit. That was just like the, <laughs> that was the cherry on top. And I was like, Fuck, yes, now I am sold. You have me, you have all my dollars. <laughs> like you have my consumer allegiance. Um, does she have, uh, does she have any works? Like any critical 
the- theoretical works? I don't think that she does. Mm. I think that she was more of like an artist and I feel like they had a, she had some cafe in France and now in Paris, I think hmm. it was kind of like this weird um, place where kind of like this intellectual artistic avant-garde music and stuff would get played, but that's kind of like half remembering some of the details. Yeah. I don't really know anything about the lose. Did you say, how do you say that word? Deleuze and Guattari? It's, I think it's, yeah, it's pronounced Deleuze, I think, but. Deleuze. <laughs> yeah, I've never read that book. I'm, I'm super into theory. I always, I always have I've been. I've heard. So <laughs> that's a big focus for the show. I've been delving into that for the last. I've been doing this series on, um, Felix Guattari has a book called Machinic Unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so been delving into that chapter by chapter with a couple of friends. Um, I got into philosophy and like critical theory in college and I read a bunch of stuff, but I was always a Spinoza, Heigl, Marx person. Gotcha. Um, I liked that stuff. Um, I mean, I read tons of stuff. I read like a bunch of Lacan. Oh, I love Lacan too. A bunch of, um, I read one Derrida and I thought it was dumb. (laughs) Um, I read a bunch of Kierkegaard. And it's always so funny because you're not allowed to say like this philosopher is dumb and doesn't have good ideas because it's like in the in in the phil- in philosophical circles it's like well you can like you can disagree or you can have like you know you can have like critical points but it's all it's like I don't he doesn't really put anything forward as far as I'm concerned <laughs> like I don't really like the or not to lose uh, Derrida. Um, uh, yeah, you either agree or you don't understand it is how it usually works. <laughs> but uh, no, I read a ton of stuff, um, but I just never really heard about the Luz or guitar. Are they, They're like newer, right? Like they're from the 50s or 70s or something? I think so. Anti, I mean, Deleuze was around for a while doing his own thing and had published like a bunch of books on, including one on Spinoza and and Nietzsche and stuff. And I think he even did like difference and repetition is kind of his big solo piece. And then they kind of teamed up in the seventies and that's where like anti-Oedipus was their first collaborative project that they did together. And then a thousand plateaus was, you know, a few years later in the seventies. And then after that, I feel like I can't remember when Deleuze died. Like he ended up killing himself. 1992. But then Guattari lived on a bit and published several of his own like solo oh, works. Yeah, Deleuze died in '95, and and uh, Guattari died in '92. So right. they, but they were they were getting, I think, maybe in the '80s. It could have been '70s. Like it, it took a while for that to get to the states. But there's been a big Deleuze resurgence in the last, I don't know, like. F- three or four or five years maybe yeah why is that i mean i don't know if there's like a single answer but i definitely have like seen his name a lot more um because i always he was always sort of considered when i was in like college i've i've like heard his name as like sort of a newer sort of less important kind of guy and now everyone's sort of like really into him that's how it seems to me I might be really wrong. Yeah, I, 
it's interesting that like I I think the culture is different now. Like Zoomers and shit are way more exposed to theory, and maybe it's just the circles that I'm in on on like weird left theory cell Twitter mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're like you know uh, fucking what do you mean theory cell theories. I don't. That's just like the kind of tongue in cheek name for some for someone who's really into theory is like a, a theory cell. Like a theory cell. Like incel, but for you're just <laughs> you're into theory, so you're you're you such a nerd. Fuck. Yeah, you do not fuck. <laughs> you just read theory and that's it. Seems boring. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like a weird dynamic there. And I mean, I meme about all of this shit. I don't know. I think it's, right. I have a lot of fun taking something like this high, like super high uh, theory and mashing it up with something disgusting, like a bodily function or whatever. I don't know. I'd have mm-hmm. get a, get a jouissance from that. Exactly. I think that's fun. But yeah, it's it's funny that kids now that are like freshmen in high school know who Deleuze or Lacan and they're reading theory. And I don't know, maybe it's just the internet has proliferated that so much more. Or there's more access to these weird like subcultures where these thinkers come up. And, you know, a lot of it is memes, to be honest, like Fucking Sterner, for example. Uh, no, I'm sure you've I, seen like a thousand Sterner memes. But. I have seen Sterner memes. <laughs> you know, I think memes are a language in and of themselves. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think that it's 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 not just exposure. It's the simplification of ideas into a different language that is more intuitively understood. Yeah. Um, that, like, when I I remember. So when I when I went to uh, college, I went to film school. I didn't go to oh, philosophy nice. school. Oh, cool. But I went to a school that um, it's the same thing though. Ultimately, it's the same thing. I mean, college for me was just like this very open play box of um, being able to explore different ideas. Um, and I mean, that's sort of the the. Um, the privilege of it, right? Right. You know? That's what college should be, right? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I mean, like, the college I went to was a very like, it's an arts conservatory that is like kind of owned by the state. It's like kind of a state school, um, so it's cheap-ish, but it's also like takes itself very seriously and is like, um, in the middle, it's like this weird, like, strange. I guess progressive for lack of a better word, like bastion in the center of a like podunk North Carolina town. Uh, so very strange, but um, I, uh, yeah, I went there sort of to learn about film, but I feel like what I really took from it was like a lot of academic work that I wouldn't have done otherwise taking a lot of elective like philosophy classes and also just meeting uh, communists like my best friends uh, were in college were like multiple communists um, and they were sort of like a little edgy, I think like this was 2006, but they were like wearing like hammer and sickle pins and stuff. And, you know, had, you know, uh, Soviet union flags in their dorms and shit. Um, But uh, that kind of stuff was like, Oh, teach me about these things. And um, one of my friends had read a ton of theory. And my point is, is that he was like, read about dialectics. 
And the concept of what dialectical materialism is felt impenetrable to me at the time. Um, and I remember like going on bike rides with him and him just like explaining to me stuff and me asking him a bunch of questions about like, well, so how do you understand whether something is appropriately an antithesis to that thesis or whatever, you know, like all of these like things uh, where it was just like, I was had so much trouble wrapping my mind around them. And now like you can read a few memes and sort of get the gist right. to the point where like you can yeah. be wrong. But like, I feel like a lot more people understand this concept that was really hard for me to wrap my head yeah. around because of memes. Yeah. Because it's a language that people have grown up with and understood very intuitively um, to the point where you can make images that hold, um, like that are indexes of ideas that would are impenetrable to yeah. people who aren't familiar with the right. language. Oh, for like, sure. If I put, you know, Guy Fieri um, and um, Guy Fieri. <laughs> nice. a, like a Posadist symbol and then, you know what I mean? Like I can, yeah. Put, oh, yeah. I can put like all of these stackable things to the right. point that it'd be absolutely impenetrable. You'd have to do like hours of research to get the meme. Right. And these people, <laughs> these kids can like look at it and be like, huh. <laughs> right. And they like understand that. Uh because they know the language and I find that very strange, but also I think much more powerful than I think anyone gives it credit for. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Not I, anybody. I, I love this. Um, so I, I mean, I think shit posting, I, I do or shit posting and meme him. I literally like call me pretentious. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I think that sh it is, there is an artistry to it. Absolutely. And well, of course I, I fucking love it. And it's definitely like, it is the so like it's really encapsulates I think postmodernity and the kind of shit that Deleuze and Guattari and fuck Lacan and Derrida like all these things Foucault etc mm -hmm. etc like whomever like this is exactly what they're talking about it's it's meaning it's communication like that's the most like whenever you pull back whenever you like um, sort of slice back all of the layers. It all comes down to transmitting like ideas between people or like how ideas flow yeah. or, or whatever. Signs like, and signifieds. Exactly. So it's like it's it's coming from this material substance originally, and then that becomes it sort of it spins out into its own thing. And then it's like this feedback loop back into the sort of material and it's like this kind of dialectical relationship between ideology and and material stuff right yeah that i think is fascinating so i've been thinking about to this i, I want to do like a serious academic study of shit posting through like the con and maybe do a, a paper or something presented at it put it in, in a journal or like go to a conference or something i think it's incredibly necessary like if it doesn't exist i mean i to be honest like i haven't like followed philosophy at this point you know like i i'm not like reading yeah whatever like academic bullshit exists because i think there is a certain point at which um like academic journals feel um like they've lost a lot of their necessity yeah um especially for philosophy like with science you know that's a more rigorous 
and I mean like the material sciences, like that's a more rigorous and like level of necessity of like medical stuff. Like you have to make sure things like add up and work or whatever. But with philosophy, um, not to say that it's not as important or it's just works differently. Yeah. Um, and the like ideas disseminate differently and paywalling them or creating a certain like level of uh, access is unnecessary, I think, for for getting at truth. Yeah. Um, if you are of a philosophy that believes in such a thing. Um, and so I, I've, I don't know if it's necessary to, but I do think that the work should be done either way. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. And I think that, you know, even if it's a medium post, <laughs> like it can be <laughs> like, that's just as valid to me. Like right. there, there's literally nothing that is like, Oh, this is a, official philosophy and right. this is not um whether it's you know a facebook post or in some journal um but i i don't know if i haven't seen anything really substantial like any substantial investigation of uh, like a semiotic uh, investigation of memes and shit posting as a concept because shit posting is an interesting thing because i know what you mean when you say that but it's like the the original definition of it i feel was like saying shit like posting shit that is dumb right and not worth anything and something you didn't make or whatever yeah <laughs> um but i feel like it's morphed right. to to include things that are that is not about bad not bad posts it is usually like most shit posting groups now have a standard of like make something interesting and make something it's not just about being funny either like and i think the inclusion of humor into the discourse is very interesting and not someone something no one's really been talking about because yeah. like why is humor leaked into and i think zizek is the father of this like the grandfather of it i guess like the idea of taking of not separating cultural criticism um or like just i mean it, you might as well just call it lowbrow comedy like right yeah even calling it cultural criticism is sort of like making it this other thing but just like being a guy and then like and like shit posting in your philosophy books is something that i think he really is the godfather of and i think there is something to be said about the way you our brains accept that right like zizek have you ever read any zizek like the parallax view i i haven't read any well shit i did i just read the latest like the pandemic book but i haven't actually done any of his like more like theoretical works i haven't got around to yet yeah i mean like his stuff is um very hit or miss because of how much shit posting he does <laughs> in his books um, <laughs> but some of the concepts that he tries to lay out i think I think it was looked upon there was a certain point where people were like why is he like making all these movie references and like why is he making all these dumb jokes and stuff but the reason is is because you it it is a it helps you understand the concept and i think if the transmission if the signal can be become clearer um to enter your mind 
um, with an anecdote or a metaphor. Um, I don't know why they weren't embracing it before. Like why we, right. why, why philosophers have been like away from it. I guess yeah. because they felt that like the signal would be noisified by the carrier, but like that's not true. <laughs> um, and I think what you find is people absolutely contain knowledge when it is associated with something that makes them laugh in a way that I don't think anyone was really expecting to happen. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think there's something about like, to borrow from like a Deleuze word is deterritorialization. So right. taking this very like, <laughs> taking that like, taking that haughty concept of like high theory and like academia and like, oh, you have to be a grad student or PhD or whatever. So referencing that and like something disgusting like cum, for example, right, is, is deterra. It's kind of breaking down that hierarchy of of knowledge or like authority and power so i think there's there's definitely some there's something to it for sure and i'm really fascinated by that process and i love i don't know i just get i'm like fucking giddy <laughs> coming like i get a smile on my face or i like laugh it's funny like my roommate and i we're both like shit posters podcasters or whatever so uh-huh i just will like blurt out i'll just be like randomly making dinner or something i'll be like rah and he's like hey what's up and i was like oh i just thought of this post <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i do that all the time i mean that's how everyone's brain works now i think yeah i mean anybody who's been on the internet since they were a kid but no i mean i think it's it's very exciting to see um people like you're saying like deterritorializing like very difficult concepts and explaining them to the masses um and i think that there there's this weird feeling there's this weird instinct from philosophers where it's like saying dumb shit or like stuff that is like classless like um makes your work less important or or and right. it's like it's it's so deeply ingrained into the whole uh field um that you have to have this certain tenor you have to have this certain way of speaking or like using the right words and it's it's 100 percent uh there's there's literally no reason you could give me that isn't about keeping the proletariat away from theoretical ideas like that's what it's for yeah like i fully believe like the cia has 100 <laughs> percent been using the ivy leagues to recruit like yeah they have been creating um they have been creating a, a syllabus to make sure that understanding of these kinds of concepts stays at a minimum um and away from working class people. Right. Um, and so I think memes are the philosophy of the working class. <laughs> I do. Hell yeah. There's, there's theory. You just did a theory right there. Boom. That was my theory. I Print did it. it. <laughs> it's interesting though. There's like a, there is very much. So the fashion world, like the high fashion world, the Rick Owens world and the Deleuze world, like those are very much kind of like speaking from the same, same place to a certain degree but like you can see the overlap to some degree like rick's clothes are kind of like a meme 
right? Like a okay, a pair what of you mean? a pair of drop crotch like pod shorts, right? Like that's a deterrent. Oh, sure. That's a deterritorialized pair of basketball shorts. I think anything. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I think anything that is. I think I, I kind of come back to uh, like uh, Umberto Eco and like semiotics with all of that kind of stuff because it's like um, anything that sort of becomes its own signifier, um, like. I, I don't think you can separate that idea from a meme. Like, yeah. Like that oh, is sure. what a meme is. Um, and I mean, I mean, I mean, I think it's interesting because who invented the word meme? Was it really Dawkins or did you I, just steal it from somebody? I, uh, I feel like I, he stole it from somebody. I'd have to look that up. But either way, like the word meme is funny because it's, it's gone from meaning it was a philosophical, like highfalutin concept, right? Like people were like, oh, a meme is this concept that is remixed and regenerated. It's a cultural idea that stands on its own and then morphs and right. you can break down the generations. And it was like, whoever made it up, I don't know if I want to give Richard Dawkins <laughs> yeah, um, right. but you know, he's a, whatever i'm sure he's a good biologist but um that idea is like real philosophy and it, it registers but like the name the word meme has become an internet phenomenon and something that anyone can participate in and therefore it is silly and not serious and i think when you when you look at the way those things degrade because of how associated they are with the unwashed masses, right? The the poors, the proletariat. Um, you can it's it's impossible not to see that like these are these are ideas that are important um and should be you know understood by everybody. Um but for some reason whenever they're understood they become stupid or something. I don't know. It's very weird. Listen to you talk, I'm thinking about how, for me, I think like an animated GIF or GIF or how the hell you pronounce it, mm -hmm. like that can be such a more efficient way to communicate a feeling or an idea than words. Mm -hmm. And right, like I oftentimes like a, those replies are like often, you know, sh shit upon, but sometimes <laughs> that is the most efficient way to communicate something I think to somebody is like this actual like sort of short video of of an action or like a cultural signifier that you can kind of both right and I kind recognize. of recognize it kind of that kind of stuff goes back to what you were talking about with like your sort of uh your instinct to sort of be different and i think that there's a certain understanding uh you know i listen to comedians talk and like anytime something is funny right there's something that's funny once and then you see it on twitter enough now it's not funny <laughs> right. you're not allowed to or it's like something to be mocked right like yeah um I have someone was making fun of like the idea that some people like everyone's like the x something or like the the rules follower or the right. you know the the law defender or whatever and um 
someone was like, why is everything that now? Like one funny person said it and now everyone does it. And it's like, well, I think that there's an interesting line there of like beating a dead horse of like this idea is not potent anymore or necessary. And comedy is a weird thing because the whole point, I mean, like lots of comedians say like, oh, the whole point is just to make people laugh. But that's not necessarily true. Like you do have to be funny, but you, if you said absolutely nothing, then is it worth anything? Um, like, could you, if you could feasibly just make people laugh by going on stage and farting, would anybody think that person was a good comedian? Uh, okay. um, and I don't know if I think that they would like, they, I think there are some comedians who'd be like, yes, like literally the whole game is stand on stage and do something that makes people laugh. And if you could do that, then that's the game and you win. Yeah. But I think that's weirdly short-sighted <laughs> um, and, and not the way it works. I think most famous comedians are people who, and not just famous, but respected comedians, you know, on either side of like the political spectrum, whether it's, you know, Louis C.K. or Joe Rogan or Eddie Murphy or uh, George Carlin. George Carlin fucking stood on stage and was like, capitalism is bad. And then people just like cheer. And like, the, he's one of the most famous comedians of all time. He barely had jokes. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> yeah, he just told people the truth. And <laughs> yeah, he literally was just like, these people don't care about you. They're fucking blood sucking vampires. And everyone was like, hell yeah, George Carlin. And they, and then like, he's the greatest comedian. Like, yeah. he's not even like, he's not. We're not talking about making people laugh. We're talking about manipulating somebody's feelings to the point where they do right. laugh and then also having insight. Um, and, you know, I don't, I think there are lots of comedians who don't think about it as like, it doesn't matter what the insight is as long as, you know, I think. Yeah, that as long as you achieve profit, for example. Right, exactly. Like I think in, input, output, profit, boom, that's it. And I think that's very reductionist. Um, but I, I think that comedy, um, stand-up or otherwise, like, is a tool to allow people to accept premises that they may not have previously. Right, um, okay. And I always think about, like, um, Louis C.K., who I know is super canceled. I don't care. Um he has this bit about um, the the ethical the ethical material of fucking a dead child, <laughs> you know. And it's yeah. like it's disgusting. And if I was like, "Hey, what do you think?" Like, if I just asked someone randomly, like, "Do you think fucking a dead child would be unethical?" And like, obviously, everyone would say yes, of course. But like. <laughs> And, and I mean, I guess I think it is, but like the comedy of that is, is from like, but why? <laughs> right. Like literally no one is being hurt and we have these understandings of morality. And he's like literally getting to like the, the core concept of like what morality is. It's like, why do we care if we hurt other people? And if we're not hurting other people, where does morality come from? Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. And like, that's a really interesting question and you should think about it. Like, I know it's uncomfortable, but like rem remembering like the concept of why is it fucking a dead child's wrong? is something I think will stay with me for the rest of my life of like, 
let it as as something that will say i need to examine what i think morality is all of the time um and he did that with a joke that is disgusting um but i think that so what my point is is that the purpose of comedy is to use it to get people to think of things that they wouldn't have normally thought of uh or be or be repulsed by um being confronted with because they're disarmed by whatever the mechanism of laughter is. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Louis C.K. read Sterner and decided that morality is a spook, effectively. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but sure, interpret it that way. I don't give right. a shit. <laughs> you mentioned uh, like beating a dead horse when it comes mm-hmm. to... Uh, like bits or memes or whatever on Twitter. So for me, I think oftentimes if something has been like thoroughly beaten to an ex- beaten to an extent, that is the humor of continuing the reference. Like I'm, I'm intentionally making a bad joke or I'm intentionally doing this. <laughs> like knowingly I'm making this disgusting joke that's bullshit or like doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And that that is both the fun part of it for the poster or the memer and for the sure. person like consuming like there's the, like an acknowledgement of of that kind of relationship that I think is to me I don't know I, I think it's there's something to it like I think the more were- the more hacky the joke is it's <laughs> almost like it's that's it's a, like there's a purposefulness to the hacky part like and that kind of meta humor is where where we are maybe yeah i think that i think that humor in general is one of the least studied things in like human society like to the point where i think the most informed understanding you can have of it is we don't understand it and trying to critique something that's funny or not is absolutely not worth it (laughs) <laughs> like there it's 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 almost to the point where you can't there's no there's no accounting for it like why do i think jackass is funny i don't know i i literally have no idea it just is and it's and we have no basis and why did someone think something is not funny is also just as difficult but right i think that there is something to be said of like like Simpsons and Family Guy uh, kind of found out um, is that like you can do something that's funny and then you can do it again right after it and it's not funny and then you can do it again right after it and it's annoying and then you can do it two more times and it's funny again. Um, and just like that repetition is the funny part. Yeah, um, exactly. Like the joke shifts and I right. think we kind of, mis- not mistake it, but we like process that as a different joke. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, that's the like the the famous Simpsons gag where he steps on the rakes, Sideshow Bob steps on the rakes. Like that's funny the first time because it's like, oh yeah, the rake was there. And then the second time it's like, well, that's silly again. And then the third time you're like, how long many times are they gonna do this? And then when on like the sixth or seventh, you're like, oh fuck, they're just gonna keep doing it. Um and I don't know why that is. <laughs> yeah, that um, absolutely I think that applies to memes and shit posting. Oh, for sure. Like there's that same, same thing. Yeah, exactly. That same mechanism is at work in those, both all those examples. That's just a different joke. Yeah. Um, 
and but 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 there's going to be the point where people are like stop it right and then you just have to push through that <laughs> yeah and be annoying because <laughs> that's part of the joke sometimes humor is the uh like the unexpected if you so that's kind of the whole thing with the kind of setup punchline is like you're le- you're leading people down a certain path and they're expecting you to say this but when you don't that surprise oftentimes generates humor mm-hmm. so that might be a good way to frame like the louis ck <laughs> thing to a degree but i mean there's that's probably not like the end all be all of how comedy operates i wonder if i have to read like and discover if lacan ever looked into jokes because I'd be interested to see like the psycho and uh, like the psychoanalytic theory behind why <laughs> yeah. we laugh from from well, but it's not even just why like that's the thing is that it's always sort of put in this box of like well let's talk about like the the physiological like what is the evolutionary psychology of laughter and it's like who gives a shit I'm talking about like what are we saying to each other and what are we doing to each other and to what end like culturally you know what i mean um and not just culturally but like um i guess it's almost like they call it the universal like thing of like laughter um and i think there must be something i mean i guess it's interesting too it's all interesting but it's like for the purposes of this conversation i think that like how can we use it do you know what i mean like how can we use it to spread uh an ideology that will benefit us as as the working class like taking the Deleuze quote that a concept is a brick but a meme or a shit post is a brick and applying yeah. that <laughs> exactly i mean we're doing it though you know it's the problem is, is like people think you know it's going to take one person to do it but it's like it's happening you know yeah it's the memes are happening. The shit posting is going on and people are finding out new ideas and it's, it's happening whether we like it or not. So I'm happy about it. It reminds me a little bit. I was, I just read uh, this book that uh, Baudrillard wrote. It was symbolic exchange and death. And he talks about kind of in this uh, anthropological way about exchange and sort of how like there's a fundamental relationship between humans and and the concept of exchange even abstracted out to like life and death and that sort of relationship but uh he i feel like he mentioned something about this ability like a, a gift is something that capitalism can't deal with or like it short circuits the logic of capitalism is, is a, right. a a gift somehow does that and i mean that's like whatever kind of micro political kind of bullshit but i don't know I've like at least memed about this idea that you could like say a phrase or like there's a meme that would somehow destroy the entire like semiotic reign of capital mm-hmm. and like cause it to fall like almost like there's this uh like a spell or something yeah, you could, you could say that would totally just like one thing would unravel all of it, and it would all kind of collapse. In, I hope that's true. <laughs> yeah, I'll just keep saying shit. So that is th- that is my goal: is to uh, read as read enough theory and do enough shit posting that eventually I'll get there to where I I, I do the right shit post right. that destroys F- capitalism. Find the right like sacred. Yeah, uh, exactly. 
order of of phrases and signifiers until just it all explodes <laughs> have you ever have you ever read anything that kind of i think orients magic in that way of of similar to like a comedian right like affecting a change in somebody's feeling or or mood or getting someone to think via just like the spoken word like that's a spell right it's like literally like spelling something out yeah i think it's uh, kind of interesting to look at that i've kind of stumbled into this idea through through comic books believe it or not but what, like the you whole mean specifically alan moore <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh absolutely alan moore and uh what's his name grant morrison right obviously and and that kind of shit yeah so, no i um i kind of got to those things through um just like exposure to the occult in general um and sort of being a goth i guess like <laughs> um the band coil um is really into that do you know coil i feel like i've heard the name but i'm not familiar with the music it's like one of the guys from the band throbbing gristle um was like a the original industrial band um it's a great name for a band for sure oh yeah they're fantastic. i love that <laughs> um throbbing gristle uh he uh was in throbbing gristle and then him and his husband started a um different band which is sort of an industrial band but sort of became this weird like white magic uh goth new age band <laughs> it's hard to explain they're great but um they were like really into the occult and so sort of i think there was a part of me that was very interested in that i grew up very christian oh um, same and uh and you know i i went through a sort of like new atheist phase for a few years of like god doesn't exist and anyone who believes in god is stupid um and i felt very swindled by that um but then you know you sort of like well once you start getting into philosophy and like and you know political theory you sort of like stop <laughs> thinking that of like well there's lots of different cultures and lots of reasons but it you know it was always sort of spooky to me um but then you know reading sort of about how certain people think about uh, the occult is not like necessarily supernatural um right but sort of basically ancient therapy um and like com like difficult to explain but like a type of communication or um mental health uh practices um having to do with manipulating your body's responses to aesthetic um i found very very interesting um because i think aesthetic is much more powerful than people give it credit for to our monkey agree. brains you know yeah. what i mean agree um and so yeah I, I found that very interesting so you know i've read crowley and like you know the weird people who got really into the occult um so yeah i've, I've heard i've heard people refer to things in spells but i i think that I don't, it's hard for me to, you know, believe in things as like, like when I say they're more powerful in the sense that they like 
words and behavior and art and aesthetic can be more influential um, to people than I think they're willing to, like, if you read the history of, like, if you, have you ever watched Century of the Self? I think so. Uh, that, huh? I think so. It's, um, it's a movie, it's a documentary about um, the history of propaganda. Yeah, because I, I feel like, doesn't that reference, like, Bernays? Yeah, exactly. And some of the early, like, 20th century Mm-hmm. And Heaps. like Freud's, yeah. yeah, Freud's nephew and sort of his, anyway, but like, if you watch that movie, like, it's incredibly, it's everywhere. Everything you think is, is like, you're basically being mind controlled by spells, <laughs> like all the time, you know, um, it's a way to think about it. Um, and I think that, you know, communists need to be fighting that fight as well, but people don't, aren't really interested in it. Um, or it smells bad to them, I think. Yeah. Um, but I think it's deeply important. Um, right. But yeah, I, I, but at the same time, I don't think, I don't believe in, um, I guess, like theurgy or whatever. <laughs> like, I don't think you can really control the, the elements um, of, by you know saying things or you know whatever thinking really hard because it it gets real into like the secret type of shit um, yeah of just like your essence can change stuff and like i think there's a there's a level of understanding of of cultural aesthetic and the power of those things that is that is good to to ascertain but and and i think that the occult is a historically powerful thing otherwise it wouldn't have carried on for as long as it did um but at the same time i don't think it's like actually supernatural <laughs> yeah i've heard it described to me and this is again going back to kind of like a Deleuze idea is that like semiotic signs signifiers all of that shit is operating on sort of like it is it does have an impact but there's like a strata there's a different strata mm -hmm. and it can only resonate like at, it can only resonate so much. Like there's a limit to that. So if you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of for aesthetics, then the likelihood of you achieving your ends is, is low. But at the same time, yeah. if you're, if you're whatever methodology or whatever you're doing outside of mere aesthetics, isn't, incorporating aesthetics to a degree then it is also going to fail because you're missing out on a certain resonance as well mm -hmm. i totally agree <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it's i think it's uh i mean the only thing that gets me a little bit i mean i don't want to sound too crazy here but like there is evidence of the american and european ruling classes caring a little bit more about it than you'd think um you know if you've read anything about Bohemian grove if you've read anything about um like world historic virtual sacrifice uh <laughs> like you know it, it's probably not the way it is like it's not i'm not saying that we're ruled by witches but like there is a level to which some people believe that it seems that the ruling class believe in it a little more than 
it's culturally accepted to believe in the importance of ritual and aesthetic right um which makes me concerned <laughs> um and i wonder exactly why and what benefits they're getting from it um and you know it's funny because you know the QAnon people or like reptilians or like illuminati people like they're seeing pieces of things and they're they're seeing and then extrapolating right they're yeah. like well they must all be demons or they must right. all be aliens or they must all be satanists um but some of those pieces are real things that are happening um and that i would like to know why <laughs> and i don't think it makes me a conspiracy theorist to be like why are they praying to a big owl like <laughs> i would like to know i would like anyone to mention why uh, <laughs> um i there must be some reason um other than like oh don't worry it's just a fun party where we all dress in robes and fuck each other's faces or whatever like it's like no something is happening <laughs> um but uh yeah i don't know i i think i think that there's a lot to be said about the power of I think it's okay to call them spells, you know, like I think that they are those things and like that doesn't mean they're supernatural things, but right. they do have some cultural power. Yeah. Um, it's like a it it does ideology does operate like there is a material force of ideology. I don't know. I've been uh, maybe I've been reading too much fucking accelerationist shit, but <laughs> this I, the idea that I'm kind of enamored with this idea that capitalism is the AI that we're afraid is going to take over. Like it's already, it's sort of decoupled itself from the conscious operation of, of individuals and is operating under its own kind of like emergent logic ind independent of like what any one person or what any group of people is doing. Like it's, it's escaped that. Mm. Is that like a Nick Land thing or something? Kind kind of. It's a, it's a little bit acceleration-y, Nick Landian sort of to a degree, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I think that that there's like something there, but like, uh, I, I think that you can sort of put a put like you know poke holes in that by asking fucking finance bros questions yeah. you know <laughs> like you can you can talk to the real like to the ruling class or the aspirational ruling class um and be like do you care like they'll say to your face like if five thousand people in south america have to die for you to drive a ferrari do you care and they'll be like no right you know <laughs> like but, but what's the, the force there's something there's a force that makes them think that that's okay too like that that idea just doesn't arrive on its own you know what i mean there's that's not an I essential it, thing i think it does i mean and i mean maybe i'm being a little too like evolutionary psychology on this but like i think that there is a very natural feeling that you are not in my in group and i don't care if you die is like a deeply human thing that i don't like I think that I think that some leftists like to appeal to like a a, a human good of right. like well we all want fairness like what we actually all want is fairness and we all want uh you know everyone to be equal 
Um, and that is not true. I, I don't believe that about humanity at all. Um, and I think like lots of people like to go back to like, well, like there was communism before capitalism, like when we were all hunter gatherers and it's like, no, there wasn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, not exactly. Right. And and not, not at all. I mean, like there may have been like communalism, like there may have been an understanding that this is a family and we all share, but once that got to people that you hadn't, that looked different than you, who were from a different area of the land, um, that, that, that broke apart. I mean, like people like to romanticize and exoticize like Native Americans, but like, it's not like there wasn't fighting among different tribes of Native Americans, like it, it you know, resource protection and, you know, fending for the people you believe is close to you at the expense of people you think are different than you is very human. Right. I think. And I, and I don't mean to be a doomer about it. Like, I'm not saying that, that we don't have the capacity as a, as a species to achieve fairness. But I think it, I think Mao is right that it takes a cultural revolution. Like it takes you understanding that fairness doesn't, isn't going to feel fair to you all the time. Right. Like, we have to be understanding that like fairness is going to require some loss of certain freedoms, quote unquote, that American liberalism has promised you. Like you may not have the freedom to buy the clothes you think, you know, or like you might not have the freedom to say the words you, you know, like you don't have the freedom to be racist. Like, yeah. You don't have the freedom to be homophobic or you don't have the freedom to um, harm people in ways that you've, or benefit off of the harm of other people. Um, and that feels like oppression to, to liberals, you know, or American people who have the privilege of, you know, driving a pickup truck. Like how many people died so you can drive a pickup truck? Like hundreds of thousands of people. And that's not fair. And when you decide that we're going to behave fairly, you not getting to drive a pickup truck is fair. And it's going to take multiple generations of education to make people understand that. I think, though, that well, to circle back to the meme thing is that uh, we are teaching ourselves that. I think we're, we're teaching ourselves that the world is unfair for a lot of people and the world is not good <laughs> uh, and we are benefiting off of off of insurmountable unimaginable violence um just going about our daily lives and if we want that to stop that might cost us something right um but i and i think those ideas are are disseminating among the internet and i hope i hope a um a larger percentage of zoomers in the generation after that kind of instinctually know that because it's been hidden from us for so long uh just because it hasn't been in the newspaper or like you know how would you know that like yeah, if you exactly were, if, if you grew up in like the 50s like what like you would have to have been like specifically listening to the commies that everyone was telling you were evil um i don't know it's like it's it's a lot harder to have been a freedom fighter you'd have to have like a very good set of morals and not cared that everyone thought you were crazy um and i and i think that you know it's hard to go against you know i feel i feel today as a communist that like everyone thinks i'm crazy you know and i mean 
I don't know that I'm not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? like, you know, I, I'm saying things that people don't like sometimes. And, 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 you know, it's only, I've been calling myself a communist for like 15 years. Um, and, and it's, it's gotten to the point where finally in the past three or four people are like, yeah, that's me too. And I'm like, well, where have you guys been? <laughs> I <laughs> right? said, Thank you. Great. Okay. Let's go. Now something about it. Um, yeah. And so I think we just need to, to, uh, I think we can teach ourselves that. I think we can get to a point where we understand that, um, that fairness, uh, it's going to take a while. It'll take work. I wonder, so I don't know, sometimes maybe I slip too far into this kind of deterministic view of, of capital or like the universe or what have you, but clearly like there is like it's not a totalit it's not a totalitarian like there is possible there are breaks in it right otherwise you and i wouldn't be communists or or what have you or like we wouldn't be having this conversation so i wonder like what is the what is that mechanism what what is different about us is anything different about us or like where is that point because i think like the the idea of the whole like the cultural revolution is to sort of generate the soil from which like the new communist will arise from right like we have to create the fertile soil for that ground to take place like we can't just try to we can't prune ourselves like let's say you're an existing tree like you can't be pruned to be a communist like you have to you have to want to be one or something mm-hmm. you know what i mean Sorry, I have to take a second. One second. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So sorry. Oh, no worries. My food came. Nice. Um, so I got to hop off here in a little bit. But oh, no worries. finish that thought. Um, I do think, to finish that thought, uh, the, you're talking about it like the, the Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen that? I haven't seen that one. I've- oh, it's great. That's the um, third one, right? That's the third one. Okay. In the Matrix, um, they understand that um, what you find out in the second one is that the Matrix uh, sort of people reject it eventually. Like so always people figure it out and they, it was like, or I guess the very first one was like too perfect or something. And yeah. like it, like people were rejecting it and just like killing themselves. Um, and so they had to make a struggle, right? Like they have like this release valve where there's this idea of the one and there's this idea of Zion and like people, they let people out basically like let like strange people figure it out. And then like, they just reset. They just kill everyone in Zion and reset. It's like the matrix in the first movie is the sixth matrix. Um, and so you're talking about like this release valve. Um, I don't like to believe <laughs> that I don't, I, I don't think that I believe that the structure of capital is sophisticated to the point that, that they've done that on purpose. Do you know what I mean? In the sense yeah. that like we're allowed to become communists because we're not effective and then they like let us get some you know like there's no world 
I don't think there's like a world order that is like, let the Soviet Union happen and then die and then it'll happen again and die. You know what I mean? Like it's not old enough to be that all consuming. Right. Um, it's, there's no, as far as I can tell, like no real evidence of it being like <laughs> that controlled, but within the country, uh, definitely. <laughs> like there's definitely a point where like certain things are allowed. You're allowed, like, uh, I know, I don't be offended by this, but I think that like some strains of anarchy, like anarchism, um, are much more preferable to the CIA uh, because they can be disorganized and chaotic more right. and like sort of like I, I've been yelled at in our in anarchist circles for asking that we have plans. I'm not kidding. Like it, it, it looking back, it seemed because I was trying to be like very um you know, comradely of like, we were just sitting around like, well, I was like, so what are we going to do? And like someone yelled at me saying like, it's, it's unethical for me to tell anyone else what to do. And like, our job is as anarchists is not to like change anything, but to offer an alternative. And I was like, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, I don't, that's insane to me. Like you're a cop, like you're a cop. Right. Like you're, you're, you're creating a bubble. And for me, that's like, I was just like, I was very anti-anarchy as a concept after that. Um, but I do think now, like, I think that there's a synthesis and like what I think people mean by anarchism is basically what I mean by communism, except like a difference in tactics to get there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I still think that mine will be more useful, but I mean, like, that's a, a fun argument to have until one of them starts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, who right. cares? Who cares what I think? Um, until, you know, I'm, you know, until a, a revolution is being led. Um, it doesn't actually matter, um, in my opinion. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think that there are, state sanctioned like leave these anarchists alone and let them blow their shit up um kill the black communists like that's sort of the pattern we've seen <laughs> like when ferguson happened people just start dying being shot in the back of the head and burning their cars like they're being killed by the cia like COINTELPRO never stopped chaos never stopped you know the black panthers were murdered move was bombed <laughs> you know like black communists people trying to unite the working class along right uh, like against racial lines are murdered um but you know white anarchists who you know just want to sit around and you know imagine that like they can camp in you know on top of a building in squats or whatever and not actually do anything to better the working class or unite the working class are generally left alone um not always, obviously, like, you know, if you're breaking, you know, cops will still fuck with you. And I'm not saying like all anarchists are doing this, uh, you know, or being bad or not, are not doing anything. I know lots of anarchists who are doing great practice and I don't mean to be like, uh, you know, but I do think that the way the cops think about it is this way. Yeah. Right. Um, I think strategically, yeah. Cops understand that there's a certain sort of rebelliousness and communalism that comes with being a sort of 
uh, white punk and that is okay and yeah. sanctioned as sort of this release valve that you're talking about. Whereas actually organizing the working class and poor and arming the poor uh, is seen as, you know, worthy of death without trial. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think, in my opinion, I, I haven't experienced any sort of pushback from the government like no one's paid me a visit for my tweets or my podcast right. yes. you know like same thing same for me so, I, so, I, so, I, <laughs> so I, far I, mean, I can't say i mean i know that our friend jake uh did <laughs> uh was visited by the department of homeland security for saying fuck ice on twitter um so there's definitely a limit to the free speech we're allowed to have and and the um what we're allowed to say and advocate for. Um, so I don't know. I think there's, there's a, I think it's less like a release valve and more like a playground we're allowed to play in. Um, but once that actually, I think they're monitoring us. I mean, I do think that we're, you know, an algorithm at the CIA is listening to my podcast, uh, and all of our friends podcasts. Um, and making sure that we don't accrue a, an amount of fans or followers or acolytes uh, to to be worrisome. And I think that's probable. Uh, but um, I think it's a, once you get to a point where people are arming themselves or, or um, you know, creating ra um, multiracial coalitions of poor people, um, helping the poor, feeding the homeless, sheltering the homeless, then you start getting up against, you know, bureaucratic um, mechanizations that are like, you're not allowed to do this. And if you do continue to do that, we'll fucking murder you in your sleep. So I, I, I don't think it's that, I think you can look at it and it's not that um, opaque, you know, like they'll yeah. do it. They'll, they'll fucking do it in public and they'll just laugh at you. Like if you try to like nobody talks about how Ferguson protesters have been murdered. Nobody it, and even entertains it. Like it's like seven, like seven of them. Like the actual leaders of the Ferguson Black Lives Matter protests have been just straight up fucking killed. Murked, yeah. Um, and that's that's where that's the line, you know. Like don't actually organize against the police, against white supremacy, against capital. Um, and if you do, you're, you will suffer the consequences. So I think, it, I think the move there is understand where the boundaries are and don't cross them until you have thousands of people doing it. <laughs> right. That's my feeling. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad we cannot figure out, like, what is the, I, what I'm curious about is, like, what is the mechanism, like, what is it about people like us there's nothing special, right? Like there's no essence, you know what I mean? What is it that makes people open to these ideas and what is it that keeps other people's minds shut off to them? Oh, I think like, it's what random. is that? Right. I think, I think it's totally random. I mean, I think it's, uh, I had, a <laughs> I had a weird experience a few months back where I was in an Uber, um, and I was talking to a guy, um, who was um, a black guy who was thinking about joining the NYPD. Um, 
and I, you know, sort of calmly, you know, tried not to let on uh, my feelings about that. But uh, he sort of asked, he was like, you seem uncomfortable with the idea of cops. And I was like, yeah, I'm not a big cop fan. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, honestly, I'm not either, but I feel like I'm afraid of them and I'd rather not be afraid of them. Hmm. Uh, I'd rather in it. And so we sort of got into this conversation and I was, he was like, well, I support black lives matter more than the cops. But, and, and like, when you really got down to where he was, this, where he was making the decision, it was about his own personal like safety. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, that's how they, get you to comply right you know is that you're if you're threatened by the police on a daily basis um and he told me he's like you know what i've been you know he's like i had a i had an experience with cops and they told me like you're never gonna be one of us um and i was like that's because the cops are a white supremacist organization it's just <laughs> kkk right and he was and i was like you mean you're allowed to join but you're never going to you know you know you're not we're not allowed allowed to go to this level of ruling class they're they're just a protector and i just started like basically saying communist shit to him <laughs> and he was like you know but the problem is is like i don't know where to go i don't know what to do like i was working with this organization that was like when i looked it up i'd never heard of it but it was like some like ngo that was like sort of just like help the poor or whatever but it was sort of very limp-wristed liberal shit and I was like, yeah, because what you really have to do is arm the poor. And he was like, yeah, you do have to do that. Like, <laughs> it's like the thing is, is like, it's random why I like the fact that me and you in our teen years were exposed to those ideas and like that resonated with us, I think is fairly random. If everyone was exposed to the idea and the logic of it, most working class people sort of like get it. Like you can talk to a Trump supporter, you can talk to a black guy, you can talk to a Chinese guy, like along racial lines, along, it doesn't matter. Like if you're poor, you understand that the cops are against you and capital is against you. And the only thing to do is either join them or fight them. And I think when you get, I think if that's laid out, the decision is like, well, in a perfect world, like most people, I think if you really drill them down on this, will say like, in a perfect world, would you rather take on the ruling class and win? And I mean, maybe you don't say these exact words, you have to put it in a sort of more palatable way, yeah. but like, would you, do you take on the cops and the people who, these billionaires and take all their money and spread it evenly? Or do you just want to be another billionaire and you're the only one and all your friends are poor? And I think the answer, most people say, well, again, in a perfect world, if we could do that, no one would die and everyone was with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously we should redistribute everyone's wealth, but like the, you know, getting everybody to agree that, okay, we're going to do this all together now <laughs> and everyone in this bar and everyone in my city and everyone who works at the plants and everyone who's a truck driver agrees with me. And we're all going to get together and go to meetings and organize and get guns. Like the, the whole prospect of it feels crazy because we're made to feel crazy. Um, and until we can get enough people to feel like you're not crazy, we all kind of agree on this and the plan has to be doable and, and not feel like life-threatening to a majority of people 
uh, we're going to kind of be stuck with everybody sort of side-eyeing each other and just like thinking about it in the back of their heads. Right. Or just being completely complicit because most people just aren't exposed to the idea at all. Yeah. Or, or to the decision, you know, like right. to, to the ultimatum. Because when you, when you really get down to it, it's an ultimatum. Like you can say, like, do you want to defend the rich or do you want to defend the poor? Um, and I think when people, some people who are, you know, their dad owns a dealership or whatever will, <laughs> si- will side with the, the defending the rich, you know? Because they're, you know, that's why you have all of these people who from Cuba who live in Miami now and are like, my my parents were are still in prison for murdering a communist. <laughs> yeah, How, that you, know what, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's gonna be those people, right? But like, I think the fact is is that there's more of us than there is of them. Uh, that just, you know, we just have to get the ideas out, and I think that's why, you know, that's why the, you know, Bernie Sanders was important that's why i think podcasts are important i think we just need like way 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 more of it i'm curious though like even you know taking a real serious like honest investment or like uh investigation into my own self it's like what why do i why do i do this why do i think this way like ostensibly I am the type of, I, at least like demographically, I'm the kind of person that would, you know, at least most people would say stands to lose something when it comes to being a communist, right? Like I'm the white cis male, right? Like I'm like at the top of the social hierarchy. So Mm. what is it that appeals to me about, about this? Is it just like a cope so that I can tell myself that I'm like a good moral person or that like I can sleep at night or like what is uh, like I'm really interested in exploring what is that mechanism within myself is it like a is it really like something quote unquote good or is it bad how do how do we get other people to <laughs> do you break think out that about yourself as far I, I I honestly don't know it's like you wonder like I read so much about ideology and like you know so I it it's curious because I, I do enjoy psychoanalysis as well so I I'm always thinking about okay, what is the, what is the contradiction here, that is, like, what is really driving this behavior? Because whenever things are operating on like the unconscious, it, there's there can be a logic to it, but it's oftentimes something that's against the grain or like something that you wouldn't take as as common like, sense. I feel like I. Um... I feel like I always gravitate towards like the randomness of chemistry in the brain. Like, you know, I, I don't think it's <laughs> like, I think that there's like probably some neurons that are connected for me where like empathy is, is a little higher. Right. You know, where it's just like, I think that there's a certain, I mean, I think everyone probably can understand that if you look at, if you went to a prison or you went and saw like, you know, some sort of genocide, we understand that like that's repulsive and like bad. Um, But I think that for me, it's just like the idea of poverty is repulsive to me in the same way. Um, And I think 
maybe it's because I grew up poor. Maybe it's because we both grew up poor. Maybe because yeah. we we've seen that in in the lives of the people um, that we are programmed to care about by like nature. Um, that we can sort of extrapolate that onto people of like different colors and races. I mean, I grew, you know, I grew up not knowing any white people, but my family, you know, because I'm half and, you know, and so maybe I, I, I look at people who look like me and I'm baffled when they like sort of say shit that like, uh, belies a sense of like, not thinking of other people as humans because they look different um like that breaks my brain um but it's that's how white people are (laughs) like that's how white people are raised um so i think that kind of stuff is just like the randomness of experience and like brain chemistry i mean honestly i think that's probably the best i could say um i think it's just like I've had the experiences to make me feel like every time I see a homeless person, I have to like fight the like sort of like inclination to like invite them to my home and have them take a shower and like, you know, give them a haircut. Cause it's like, I don't, I'm one person and I don't know how to like, you know, like I have to logically be like, I, that isn't actually going to help this person. Yeah. I don't have the strength and emotional and monetary f- power to help every single person, but it's like, that's how I feel. Yeah. And I don't know if everyone actually feels that. Um, and um, so I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think there's certainly a psychological thing to it, but I, I also think that it's not just, there's not anything unique about me. I think that anyone who had the experiences and is presented with the ultimatums and the logic and the options would, I think a lot of people would pick the ones that would help the most people. Um, I think the trolley problem is an interesting thing because that sort of experiment, everyone understands that what, what you're supposed to do, even if you disagree on the outcome is is do the most good, right? Right. Like we all, whether we are inherently good, like I think most of us want to do good and want to not hurt people and understand like that's all something we share and that I don't think capital has really um, been successful in, in, and because that's why liberalism exists, right? Like neoliberalism exists because we can't stare at the fucking like gaping maw of capital and like people just falling and roasting and like the disgusting violence that is done. There has to be some like you know, opiate to be like, well, if you buy these particular products, then you're actually helping and you know, you're reducing the harm and like we need to do something to reduce the harm. And those things are placate, like placate the people who actually care. Um, and I think the people who don't are usually so far removed from those things that they don't even know about them. Um, and those are the two sides of like neoliberalism, right? Um, so I think once once you really are like blackpilled on 
<laughs> capitalism, you know, of like, well, actually, when you show the people who don't understand the the level of violence done to people that that is happening, they care. And the, when you show liberals that their buying options aren't actually helping and that they have to do something, they usually do care as well. But they just like, like, I've had so many arguments online with liberals where the end of it is they 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 hit they understand everything i'm saying and they're like well what do you want me to do about it like i will they they don't have the option they don't know what the options are right um and i think so yeah i just think it's like it's less about why it's more about how to get people to want to do stuff because 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 everything everyone's just so jaded with like you know oxfam and and you know, giving to charity and, right. you know, volunteering at a food bank on a weekend or whatever. It just doesn't feel like it's helping any. It just feels like polishing, uh, you know, it feels like giving, you know, giving massive amounts of dying children a candy bar. It's like, yeah, I guess you made them a little happy for one second before the like massive amounts of pain like <laughs> comes back and they die. Um, and uh, that's just so soul crushing. It makes people want, not want to do anything. Um, and, the inertia of yeah. the inertia of the world is feels overwhelming. It's like turning the Titanic around, you know, it doesn't happen. Like you can't turn the Titanic around on the dime. Yeah, it feels, so, I mean, that's, you know, capitalist realism. It just feels so unchangeable but i promise you it's not unchangeable <laughs> uh, but anyway i have to run right on uh one last note is yeah so I, I just think maybe one step we could take is if we put thc in the water supply perhaps <laughs> perhaps this is an avenue that oh, hasn't I been see. explored you were you were getting uh, you were getting around <laughs> to smoking weed <laughs> yes a thing that i enjoy doing <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely it's, it's, it's something that, uh, the government has openly been hostile towards for a long time. And I think for a reason, I mean, I, I think it's sort of a trope now that yeah. like stoners would be like, dude, you just gotta smoke this and open your mind. But it's like, yeah, a little bit <laughs> like it, will there help. is, it can, <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't not help. It can kind of crack less like. It can kind of crack through ideology just like a little bit and show you, okay, maybe this world that I think is mm-hmm. unified and it's like ossified is not so – there's a lot more fluidity than we're led to believe. Yeah, mushrooms and acid and DMT, like psychedelics, man, like really help – really help wrap your mind around stuff and there's a reason that they're fucking illegal i mean i this is like joe rogan shit but so, <laughs> right. i'm so serious like it's it's definitely true and you know they know it like they've they've basically like admitted that they made marijuana illegal so that they could arrest leftists and mexicans you know <laughs> like it's like they made it so that they could like or they drugs are about arresting people who are oppositional to the ruling class. Like that's how drug, they don't, they literally do not give a shit if you die. You know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that's not what it's about at all. Um, of course it's not. It's just about, yeah. It, so yeah, that could be it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bryn, thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast. I, of course. it wasn't, ex- it wasn't exactly what I thought it would be, but I think mm. it's, 
turned out amazing. Like <laughs> it really did. Uh, I mean, I'm, I was open to doing something without like a set plan and I think it turned out amazingly well. I think we, I don't know, it's just like an earnest conversation bet- between two people. So I think it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Um, but before I let you go, I want you to plug all of, all of the amazing things that you're doing. Oh, okay. Um, I uh, have a podcast called BB Bledis that's about politics and weed and memes. Um, communism, specifically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I have a... Uh, it's mostly a very goofy comedy show where we're all fucking radical-ass people. Uh, if you haven't heard it, check it out. Uh, I also have a movie show with Jeremy Hammond from Ballin' Out Super and uh, Two Minutes of Late Night uh, called Generation Loss. Um and that's a fun show if you want to hear me ramble more about um, media and uh, politics in media and mostly just stupidity in media. Um, and then uh, I have a band called Stand Side. Um, we just put out an album last month. Uh, people are liking it. Uh, it's called Viewing. Check it out on Spotify or Bandcamp or whatever. And I play video games on Means TV under the name Left Trigger with uh, Chris from BP Bledis uh that's all for now follow me on twitter kingdom mazography <laughs> oh yeah uh but again thank thanks again to bryn for joining me on the podcast uh before we do close out the episode just want to mention i do have a patreon if you feel so inclined um we do accept we do accept patrons and you can find me at patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h follow the show twitter feed at unconscious hh and instagram as well at unconscious hh but this is going to be the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry signing off for the week boom thanks again brent bye the very this is awesome of killed it enjoy your lunch yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right thanks uh yeah we know we've gotten to a lot of interest Including the ultimate form of security, which is podcast.